All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I gave thanks? So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. Father, you know that I feel physically weak and frail today. But may that increase my dependence on you for communicating your word. May that even increase our dependence on you for hearing and responding to your word. Because we need your work to be done. Use me fully and only for your purpose. May there be words of truth here for mothers and fathers, for young people and mature in years and in faith. May the one far from you be brought near and may the weary be served refreshing water from the fountain of life. May you rebuke the hard-hearted, but at the same time lift up the heavy-hearted. Speak to us in what you reveal from Scripture. Speak to us through the convicting nature of your Spirit's work. And draw our attention to Christ, through whom we can pray to you now. Help us to flee idols and worship you alone. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Have you ever thought about what it would take to create a utopian society. Maybe you look at the situation in the world, in your part of society, and you wonder just how much better it could be if we did things differently. Maybe you've thought through what kind of people would need to be in this utopian society. How would the direction of that society be maintained over generations? Maybe you haven't thought about it that far, but I remember a film, The Village by M. Night Shyamalan. It's a movie that depicts one person's perspective on a human attempt at utopia, at a perfect society. And I won't give any spoilers, but I really like this movie. In the past, it probably would have been on my top ten list or something like that, primarily because I think it's a very fitting view of the human condition. 
apart from redemption because it's, it's a very non-redemptive story. And without giving major plot spoilers, we see a group of people that seek to disconnect themselves from the corruption that they see in society. And to maintain this disconnection from society, they even try to foster a fear of the outside world as if that's the only danger they need to be worried about. If we keep the world out and build walls and and set ourselves off in this remote forest village, maybe then we can maintain what we are creating here. But in doing so, they miss the brokenness and the sin that they carry into the village. That it's not out there, but it's inside and that they transmit to their children. So even with strict standards of morality, this kind of a story shows us how we are powerless in ourselves to create that kind of society, to produce the heart change necessary to live in perfect harmony. We in ourselves will always fail at that attempt. And people over the centuries of Western thought have put quite a bit of thinking, have spilled a lot of ink over this kind of need for a unified and working system of ethics. And the systems that have been created typically revolve around a few key principles. And by ethics, I mean a system by which people govern what is right and what is wrong. How do we live together in a a functioning society without having some foundational principle that we all agree on? So the first of the four principles that often come up in systems of ethics are rules. We need to set down a framework of rules. And we we even do this, I'm sure, in our families. Think of what we say to young kids. The first thing we probably tell them once they're mobile is don't do this. Don't go into the street. Or we tell them other instructions, rules like you need to share your toys. You need to eat your veggies. And rules are helpful, but they only go so far. Perhaps as kids get older, we add reasons to the rules. Don't go into the street or this will happen. Do this behavior so that as you get older, you've established some good habits. But in rules, we need to keep creating more and more of them. And we recognize, especially as Christians, that in themselves, rules have no power to change from within. But there's whole ethical systems that are based primarily on rules. Deontology, which is the Kantian ethics of obligation or of duty, which basically says we need to set up a system of rules that bind us to our duty. And if everyone knows what their duty is and functions in that way, we'll have a a functioning society. Or there's divine command theory that basically says that moral goodness is based on obedience to the commands of God. But as I said, rules in most systems have been seen to fall short. So then the next principle that often comes in is rights. What are the rights that we need to acknowledge in building this system of right and wrong? For example, I have no right to take what's not mine. It sounds like a rule, but it's actually I'm establishing some right around property. Or if you look even at some of our founding documents, we have a right to life, to liberty, to the pursuit of happiness. Our first ten amendments to the Constitution 
penned by James Madison, are known as the Bill of Rights. These set boundaries and protect individual rights over and against the government. And remember that Paul has even been talking already in these chapters about his rights, about the believer's rights. And examples of systems primarily based on rights are things like social contract theory that says we all agree to a basic set of rights that are maintained and we submit to a government that's going to help maintain those rights. But then you start asking, what is the basis for determining what what rights we really have? And when rights or perceived rights come into conflict with each other, which one is supposed to take priority? So that often leads to another one of these main tenets of ethical systems, and that is values or virtues. These define a settled pattern of acting and feeling that set certain boundaries or principles on right and on wrong. They're the framework out of which rules are created. But they define not just what we do, but who we are, who we are inside, what motivates us. And values might be a personal form of what society would consider virtues. Some examples of systems that are built around this are are virtue ethics, which looks at the moral goodness or character of a person rather than on duties or on rules. We also see this in moral relativism, very popular today, which states that morality is only relative to the norms of the culture around us. There is no absolute standard, so true virtue is going to vary depending on the situation. Again, that's a very popular uh, postmodern, post-Christian kind of viewpoint, moral relativism. And like other systems, virtue ethics are dependent on who determines what is virtuous, which may end up being no one at all. And then we come to the fourth tenet that often comes into systems, and that is results. Some ethical systems focus instead on the end product, and the means of how we get there are less important. They might ask final questions like, what will make the most people happy? Or what outcomes need to be avoided? And then they justify any present actions by the future results they want to create. And some examples of that are like consequentialism or utilitarianism. So I I bring this up kind of to set a framework for us because we're going to be looking today at what Paul presents as the ethical system that the gospel creates. And we'll be looking at two main points. We'll be seeing an encompassing summary of Christian freedom. And the first roughly half of the passage will cover that, verses 23 through 30. And then we'll see an exalted vision of Christian love. And Paul will continue to talk about really the framework, what undergirds this kind of a a response and really what creates a system of ethics. So I want to ask the question for you to think about. What kind of ethical system does the gospel create? Not just maybe what you've heard growing up in church, not what society tells you, But what ethical system does the gospel create? How does the gospel inform you about what's right and what's wrong? How does it change your ability to do that? What are the core moral principles originating in the truths of Christ, living, dying, and risen again, that govern the way we live here and now? And how might this be similar or related to other systems of ethics, maybe even some that I just talked about?
How is it different? This is perhaps a harder one. In what ways do you think your life currently is being shaped by this gospel ethic? In what ways are you living and acting? In what ways are your decisions being shaped by ultimately the truth of Scripture, but as revealed through the gospel of Jesus Christ? And finally, how should we respond when the word reveals ways that our lives are directed by other systems, by other patterns of behavior? How should we respond today when the word exposes that in our hearts and our lives? My big idea, I believe the text is going to show us that the gospel ethic radically calls and enables us to follow Christ in lives that are devoted to God's glory and sacrificial love for others. It's on the screen, but I'll repeat it. The gospel ethic radically calls and enables us to follow Christ in lives that are devoted to God's glory and a sacrificial love for others. As I mentioned, we'll have the two main points that will cover the breadth of our text today. We'll start with the first one, an encompassing summary of Christian freedom. Paul starts by contrasting the statement that was probably a common one of the day. All things are lawful. There's a statement about Christian freedom that I'm able to do all things and all things are permissible, basically. But Paul compares that with what their view should be within a community of other believers and the way they should honestly assess the lawfulness of their actions. He says all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. This is different from 6.12. This may sound like a familiar um, statement. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6.12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful basically repeats the first part of that verse. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. In that first instance, he was talking about immorality or those things that would affect the individual's choices and that he would not be enslaved by them. Here, he's talking more broadly about what decisions will mean for others, what decisions will benefit the welfare of others. And Paul is saying, even if an action is permissible on its own, it should be governed as my personal freedom in terms of whether it's constructive in the broader context of Christians and of non-Christians that I'm in contact with. So even though all things may be lawful in themselves, I need to consider them in the context of life that I'm in. And how will it be helpful? How will it build up? others. And the two principles he's talking about are summarized by a broad command in the next verse. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. He's moving away from an ethic of egoism, basically, what can I do that will help me? And instead, he's saying, my choices should not be about my own good, but about the good of my neighbor. And this imperative that Paul is giving 
is grounded in everything that Paul has said in the past three chapters. His discussion about Christian freedom relating to meat offered to idols. But it it is rooted also in the indicatives of Christ's work. It builds on examples of how, how Paul had abandoned his own rights to avoid creating a stumbling block or hindering his gospel ministry. And it also further develops the warnings that he just gave earlier in chapter 10 about idolatry. All of our freedom in Christ is tempered within the framework of what will be helpful, what will be ultimately to the ultimate good of my neighbor. And I even put on the slide in brackets what I believe is the implied clause in this command. Let no one seek his own good, but, in contrast, let everyone seek the good of his neighbor. This doesn't just happen. This doesn't automatically be the response of our hearts, but it requires active obedience of dying to ourselves, of dying to perhaps even some of our own ambitions or desires and following Christ and seeking the good of others. And how are we to hear this instruction other than as a restatement of the Old Testament law in Leviticus 19? You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. He roots that in the personal name of God. Loving our neighbor as ourself is rooted in our relationship with the eternal God who has revealed himself to his people. And it's also repeated when Christ commanded to love one's neighbor as ourself being the second half of the great commandment. Let me read, and I encourage you to even turn there. I'll read from Mark chapter 12. This is repeated in other of the synoptic gospels. But we'll read the one from Mark 12, starting in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. This is Christ teaching that out of which obedience to these two commandments flow all of our lives. Most of us don't need to be told to love ourselves. That tends to be more the natural position, but to love others with the same intensity, the same focus, takes a supernatural working of God. So we recognize that even our desires to love others better fall short of this kind of standard. What are we to do with our insufficiency to do this before the God of love? Can we ever measure up to this new ethic of freedom that's governed by prioritizing the good of others above ourselves? Hold that question. It's a good one. And we'll come back to this exact question more in the second point of our outline. Because Paul is going to actually turn a corner. He's just given this, this bold statement in 1 Corinthians 10, 24. 
And now he's going to give a few examples, a few vignettes, some scenarios that would have actually been happening in their community. And these are different from the earlier scenario that he talked about in chapter 8. In that scenario, it was going to a temple to eat meat there. But now he answers directly what the Corinthians ought to do when they go to the market and buy meat. When they get invited into a private home. Let's read that. Starting in verse 25. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Notice the breadth of freedom. I kind of emphasized it in the way I read it. But the breadth of freedom extended by Paul in those examples. Eat whatever is sold without raising any questions. Eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions. So Paul is not advocating some kind of new restriction on freedom here. But in cases where the source of the meat is unknown, they can eat freely with clear conscience. I like to call this section meat of ambiguous origins, a.k.a. mystery meat. Not that the animal of origin is unknown, like when you eat meat in your school cafeteria, perhaps, or a summer camp, and you call that mystery meat, because that truly is a mystery. But here, the unknown part is what happened to the meat. Was it offered to idols or not as part of its preparation? And Paul is saying, if you don't know, you can eat freely. And the jury is out. In fact, the scholars have typically a a full range of opinions on this, but I think the jury is out on whether the market in Corinth would have actually identified which meat was offered to idols you know, the little sign in front of it on special idol meat or something like that. But many scholars think that that meat that had gone through the process of being offered in the temple would likely have cost more money, but it would have been very abundant in a city like Corinth with its dominant temple culture. But instead of going to the store and raising questions of origin, Paul encourages them to purchase and eat freely. Or maybe in this example, someone else went on their behalf to the market. And you, the person that sent them, don't know what kind of meat they came back with. According to Paul, you're able to eat such meat. You have freedom. And in this setting, you will not be a stumbling block to your brother. He's not violating his previous um, instruction on that. And the second scenario is similar in that you're invited and inclined to attend a meal with a non-Christian. You're a guest in their home. Whatever is set before you, pretty broad freedom. You are to eat it without needing to ask the question. And Paul extends the liberty to the one who's a guest. The wording he actually uses, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question. What that really means is without starting an investigation, without evaluating all the evidence and reaching some final judgment about the meat, you are free to eat it. It seems that what he's indicating is too many anxious thoughts about the contamination of the meat, about what others might think. This isn't benefiting anyone in this setting with a non-believer. If he's not raising it to you as idolatrous meat, 
according to Paul, again, you can eat freely. But what's important, I think, is what is the basis that Paul gives for this freedom? It's rooted in God's ownership of all of his creation and the goodness of that creation for, its image, for his image bearers. Paul quotes the divine songwriter in Psalm 24, verse 1. And I want to read that psalm in its entirety. It's titled, The King of Glory, a psalm of David. Psalm 24, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God of Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. In that psalm, the psalmist is expounding on God's creation and his sovereign rule over all that he has created. And this establishes his prerogative to set the lawfulness of human actions. As, as divine image bearers, we have an exclusive relationship to the creator that the inanimate universe and other plants, animals don't share. We've been given the responsibility to rule over and care for God's creation underneath his rule, his kingship. Remember that mandate in Genesis to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We are stewards of God's created world, all of which was pronounced good at creation. And its purpose was to reflect his glory. He is the king of glory as the psalmist ends. And the British biblical scholar Anthony Thistleton points out three main functions. I've kind of summarized them on the slide for you. And these are my summaries of, of what Thistleton pointed out from Psalm 24. Paul quotes Psalm 24 because, one, it lifts the attention from self and some overwrought anxiety to remind us that the sovereign owner of everything is the Lord. So it lifts the attention from self and an overall anxiety to be pointed Godward, that he is the sovereign owner of everything. Second, it reminds the anxious about the totality of God's creation over which he reigns. Even what passes through a pagan temple still belongs to God, still is part of his created rule. And third, it implies that every good gift of God is to be accepted with gratitude as the Lord's gift. In this way, it's a sort of saying of grace to recognize the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's recognizing that it's something from him that can be received with gratitude. And Paul changes then 
in verse 26, I'm sorry, verse 27, to a third scenario. Third time is a charm. 28. If someone says to you, the next verse, if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. So now we are out of the realm of ambiguous meat origin and we are into the realm of understanding where that meat came from. And I believe Paul is pointing out here what the presence of the weaker brother might look like in that scenario. In the scenario where someone brings up the source of the food, the implication is that they're bringing it up with some uncertainty. Either with uncertainty about what am I supposed to do with this? This food was offered to idols. Or perhaps they're bringing it up, trying to, trying to trap the, the believer into how are they going to respond in this situation? Do they believe in the, the idols? But likely, more likely than not, this is a fellow believer asking it as a question to see what you will do. And Paul's instruction in this situation is not to eat that meat out of spiritual consideration for the one who pointed it out. And three times he reiterates the other person's welfare for the sake of the one who informed, for the sake of conscience, not yours, but his. Again, I think he's transporting us back to 24, not seeking our own good, but the good of our neighbor. It's likely he's continually reminding his hearers that the good of the other is to be the priority. Even in cases where the other has incomplete or insufficient knowledge, the conflict or the contradiction, the struggle which your eating could create is not worth it. The ethical weight here is about my concern for the other's state. So two rhetorical questions then close out this section. The two questions he asks in verse 29b and 30 are probably the most puzzling in the overall passage. The questions he asks are, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So what does Paul mean by bringing up these two why questions? Why does Paul ask why? Is he changing the sense in which he has just instructed the Corinthian believers whether or not to eat? Or is he perhaps strengthening his argument further? The two main views, among many others, and I think I actually had them on the previous slide. I think there's two options about why Paul is bringing this up. The first one is Paul may be recognizing that his freedom is best exercised when it doesn't raise unnecessary difficulties. For Paul to have eaten when the origin was uncertain, the first two scenarios, didn't raise any concern. And it can be done with gratitude to God, the giver of every good gift. For Paul to not eat when the origin is revealed, the third scenario also raises no concern, but it requires him to restrict his liberty. And in both of these, there would have been no denouncing of Paul's character, no defamation happening. The second option is that Paul is expounding that we are no less free when we choose to enter into another's restrictions to meet their needs. 
In this view, for Paul to not eat in deference to another involves a conscious decision that he's making about how the freedom God has granted can be used constructively. And there's implications here for how we are to view what personal freedom looks like. What does it mean even to have a free will? Does it mean I do whatever I want to do or that my will is bound up with my desires? Therefore, what rules my heart determines my freedom. In Paul's mind, what would rule his heart was the good of others, that they would be saved. So he is not restricting his freedom. He is still perfectly free to live within that passion, which may mean eating at times and may mean not eating at times. If our heart is truly for the good of others, we, I believe, will be willing to set aside that which might distract or hinder another's growth. This is really back to all things being lawful, but everything may not build up. It's not enough for a Corinthian to simply say, well, I gave God thanks for this food, so I'm free to eat whatever and around whoever I please, because that freedom is ruled by self, not by a love for others. So if there's, maybe with those options laid on the table, if there's, a lack of clarity in your mind at this point. I urge you not to despair. But to summarize my understanding, Paul doesn't want his hearers to have heard these three scenarios about permissible and non-permissible eating and think that our liberty is the preeminent motivation when we make a decision. Because he's going to continue now to describe what are the main motivations that should undergird eating, drinking, and everything else we do in life. But before we turn the corner into our second point, I'd like to make an application and urge you to seek the Spirit's application as well. So I don't think the eating of meat offered to idols, and we've talked about this in previous weeks, that is not the scenario, the circumstance that we live in. But there are similar areas involving Christian liberty that do involve us, and in which we should consider more than our ability to make decisions freely. In which of these examples, and I have a few areas I'll just kind of walk through, should we consider a broader perspective based on God's reign over all his creation, based on our responsibility as image bearers to steward our decision for the good of others? And how is the gospel being brought functionally to bear on the way we live when we make decisions in these areas. Now, I recognize each of these could be a message in themselves, so I raise them here for your prayerful consideration and possibly for later discussion if, if desired. But each of these, I recognize, could also touch a nerve, and maybe I'm doing that intentionally, but these are areas we should be thinking when we make decisions. The purchase of property, the purchase of possessions, these are areas over which we have liberty, but areas which also can affect and evolve those around us. The use or abstaining of alcohol in certain situations. The enjoyment of various styles of music, of film, of theater, of literature and our involvement with social media or other parts of the internet 
These are areas I believe that scripture does give us liberty to an extent, but also areas that our choices in them directly impact those around us. And so I ask in all of these, are we seeking our own good when we make choices or the good of our neighbor, the good of one another to build up and to be helpful? So it's good to be challenged by the Spirit's application of the word and the grid through which we tend to make our decisions, whether it's focused on self-seeking or even making decisions based on a, a personal standard that we set up, or is it based on a passionate pursuit of the glory of God and the good of others? So Paul concludes this section talking about me offered to idols with a broad explanation of Christian liberty and caps it off with an exalted vision of Christian love. Paul is going to give us a vision for what true Christ-formed, spirit-produced love looks like. And the components of it, the working pieces, have already been encountered in the text, many of them just in seed form. Remember all the way back in 8.1, when he was talking about knowledge and coming to the, the topic of me offered to idols, he said, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. But now those seeds are going to start bursting forth into blossoms, and I pray producing satisfying fruit in us. This is the way the gospel creates an ethic or a system of belief. If I could summarize the main aspects of this love, it has three parts. It has a passion of glorifying God. It has a priority of serving others. And it has a pattern of following Christ. It's a little bit overly alliterated. I recognize that. But I believe all of these are derived from the text, and I'll show you how. We'll start by looking at the passion for God's glory that is all-encompassing. Verse 31, probably one of the better-known verses in the entire letter. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Again, eating and drinking are used in the context of whether to eat or abstain in the realm of meat offered to idols. This has been on Paul's mind for the past couple chapters. But I don't think Paul intends for the use to be restricted by this because he references eating and drinking that also carry with them the universality of what it means to live for God's glory. It's not just when you're reading your Bible, when you're praying, when you're sharing your faith, when you're preaching. It's not just for the quote-unquote spiritual aspects of life, but down to the everyday minutiae of eating and drinking. These two are essential, perhaps more so for a life lived with God's glory as its core and driving passion. In addition, I think we need to recognize what Paul means when he says glory. It's the Greek word doxa, from which we get the English word doxology, meaning praise to God. And in a true Hebrew sense, that word carries with it a lot of weight. It talks about something that's impressive or radiant with splendor or even weighty. For God, it consists of all his character for which he is infinitely praiseworthy. So God has this glory in himself, and he created everything in the universe around us to reflect that glory. One text that shows this aspect of his created work, especially in his image bearers, is in Isaiah 43. I'll, I'll start in verse 5. Fear not, for I am with you. This is God speaking to his people. I will bring your offspring from the east, 
and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So if our purpose for being created and being called by God to be his own is to bring him glory, how do we do that? To start with, I think it's good to recognize we are not adding to God's glory by doing things for his glory. He has infinite glory in himself apart from us. So the way that we do things to God's glory is by bringing attention to and magnifying the glory that already exists in him. Many have previously used the illustration of making God's glory bigger, but not in the way a microscope makes something very small and making it bigger, but like a telescope. Bringing glory to God is like taking something that's already really huge, but far away, and bringing it closer up. And by living in faith and obedience, we show each other, and we show the world just how glorious our God is. We magnify his greatness. And just when we think we've studied God for long enough and we understand his attributes, it would do us well to recognize that these attributes of God are infinite in nature. So we can basically start over at square one with our finite minds and keep learning and keep growing in them. I've been meditating recently on portions of Psalm 139. The text is talking about how God is everywhere. He's present in all places. But thinking about it as it relates to me personally and meditating on that, he ends verse 6 by saying, This knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain to it. So I'd urge us, especially urge us as we, we value the precision of understanding God's word, I'd urge us to be cautious about any study of God that we try to tie up too neatly with a bow as if we fully understand the infinity of God's glorious character. Yes, we can know him truly through scripture. We can know him as he reveals himself, but our finite minds are always going to fall short of knowing him completely. May the glory of his person cause me, cause the other elders, cause us as a church family to keep pressing into knowing him more and more recognizing at the same time how little of him we actually grasp yet and to know that we'll have an eternity to keep on learning. And Paul now makes personal the universal statement he had before. Remember, he had the statement, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Now he turns this internally. He says, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. These verses are drawing on many parts of the chapters leading up to this, but they strike particular chords with places in chapter 9, where he said, To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, that I might win those outside the law. So he's again saying, give no offense to Jews or Greeks. Recognize the breadth of the church of God and give no offense. He wants us to make sure our actions are taking into account what we know about each other 
prioritizing, again, their good. He's not saying avoid the offense of the gospel. Remember, this is the same Paul that recognized that the gospel would be a folly to some, be an offense to others, be a stumbling block to others. But to not be an offense in ourselves of how we live out our lives, how we present the gospel. And broadens the scope then to the entire church of God. It's clear that God has a mind in writing this toward more than just what Corinth was facing in that day, but toward us as well. Then Paul says, I tried to please everyone. Now this isn't Paul going back on his words that he said before. Remember in Galatians 1, he said, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So Paul is not contradicting himself here. The word used for please doesn't have to do with impressing others, doesn't have to do with gaining their favor, but rather it has to do with satisfying their needs through active service. His aim was to meet people in their need and serve them toward their ultimate good. That's what embodies Christian love. And again, he says, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. He personalizes it to his own goal, the salvation of many. And I'm encouraged, at the same time challenged by Paul's boldness here. He doesn't have just a few people in mind. He doesn't say, I'm, I'm not seeking my own advantage, but that of a, a small handful. But he says that, that's going to benefit many. And may we catch that kind of enthusiasm for actions that exalt and show the beauty of the gospel to many. And ultimately, Christ is our example of this kind of willing service for the good of others. If anyone should have justifiably lived to be served, it would be him. But he came to serve. We see this all through the epistles. We see it in Philippians. We see it in others of Paul's epistles. But I want to take us to Christ's own words in teaching his disciples. Remember, they were arguing about their place in the kingdom. And in Mark 10, I don't think I have this on a slide now. In Mark 10, verse 42, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. The text gets us there too in 11 verse 1. This is perhaps the worst chapter division in recent memory, but we absolutely must dip our toes into chapter 11 to include this verse. This concludes and gives vision and hope to how we're to accomplish the God-glorifying, others-serving gospel ethic that's here. Paul says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Our final pattern is Christ and following him. And it's by seeing and following the pattern of his self-giving, of his not coming to be served but to serve, that we're able to really see the ethic that I've been talking about. The pull of egoism or utilitarianism, of, of moralism or moral relativism, 
these are just too strong for us to fight on our own. We need to see this kind of life lived and to be empowered to live it as New Covenant believers. And Paul engages his readers to first follow him. They had firsthand experience with him. But he makes it clear who they're ultimately following, and that's Christ himself. There's a theological term for this. I think it's Latin, so I'm going to not pronounce it correctly, but it's Christus Exemplar. That stands for Christ being our ultimate example. And yes, we need a Savior first. Christ was not only an example. He was not only a moral pattern to follow. But once we have experienced that redemption, the model he provided of a sacrificial life is essential to us, brothers and sisters. Without it, we will be half-hearted believers in a life of sacrifice that we ourselves don't embrace. But with it, we're empowered by the Spirit to live in that way for others. This is what John Piper had to say, an excerpt from his book, 50 Reasons Why Christ Came to Die. He said, imitation is not salvation, but salvation brings imitation. Christ is not given to us first as a model, but as Savior. In the experience of the believer, first comes the pardon of Christ, then the pattern of Christ. In the experience that Christ had, they happened together. The same suffering that pardons our sins provides our pattern of love. But in fact, only when we experience the pardon of Christ can he become that pattern for us. It's a little bit more. This sounds wrong because his sufferings are unique. They can't be imitated. No one but the Son of God can suffer for us the way Christ did. He bore our sins in a way that no one else could. He was a substitute sufferer, and we can never duplicate this. It was once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. However, this unique suffering, after pardoning and after justifying sinners, transforms them into people that act like Jesus. Not like him in pardoning, but like him in loving like him in suffering to do good to others, like him in not returning evil for evil, like him in lowliness and meekness, like him in patience and endurance, like him in servanthood. Jesus suffered for us uniquely that we might suffer with him in the cause of love. I love that quote and think that it's helpful for understanding how we're to do any of this. How does this gospel ethic work out in our lives? It works out because we have the one who has saved us that is also a pattern for us and that also empowers us to live that way. Let's come back to that opening question about a gospel ethic and make some application based on the text. Jesus himself entered human history and human flesh, creating a way that we know God personally and forming a new people by his blood. So if the reality of Jesus' life and death for us doesn't change anything about how we relate to God and others, if it doesn't radically reshape our ethic, then we've missed something. On the other hand, if by the transforming work of his redemption, we're formed into a new people with new patterns of living, then we're talking about more than just a religious experience, but a relationship with the God of heaven. And Christ is at the center of all of it. One way to think of this is to start with those four tenets of ethical systems that I talked about at the beginning and seeing briefly how each one is related to him. I'm sorry, the edge of that looks like it got cut off, but related to rules. Jesus is the one 
that perfectly fulfilled all of God's commands so he could be both our perfect high priest and the spotless atoning lamb. Related to our rights, Jesus took the brokenness of God's creation from the fall and restores everything according to his purposes. Related to virtue, Jesus is the perfect image of the invisible God, so he perfectly reveals God's character, the only truly virtuous one. Related to results, Jesus is the one who prepares a final place for his people and prepares his people for that place, and he will rule that new heavens and new earth perfectly with them. These final results are far better than anything we could dream of in our utopian society. And now as we experience the already aspects of God's kingdom, we live in faith of those not yet aspects. So Jesus Christ perfectly fulfills and creates this gospel ethic for us by being the one who obeyed all the rules and empowers us to do so, by being the one who sets what is right, by being the only virtuous one, and by setting the future for his people. In conclusion, G.K. Chesterton wrote the book The Everlasting Man a little over a century ago. He wrote it in what was quickly becoming a post-Christian England. Post-Christian means people don't even think in Christian framework anymore. But Chesterton wasn't writing this book to get people to stop walking away from Christianity as they were in his day, but so that they would at least have eyes to see what they were walking away from. He said if you could imagine Christianity like this big city, so massive and so majestic, you could hardly realize the scope of it from inside. He said to those who grew up in Christianity, they're probably overly familiar with certain parts of it. They know a neighborhood, like a child who knows their small neighborhood down to the potholes in the street. But he said, before walking away from the city, you should at least try to tour the whole thing. And if you won't do that, you should at least ask someone on the outside just how they see it. And here's Chesterton's words from that book. It is the contention of these pages that while the best judge of Christianity is a Christian, the next best judge would be something more like a Confucian. The worst judge of all is the man now most ready with his judgments, the ill-educated Christian, turning gradually into the ill-tempered agnostic, entangled in the end of a feud of which he never understood the beginning, blighted with a sort of hereditary boredom with he knows not what and already weary of hearing what he has never heard. That's sobering. Do those walking away from Christianity today, I would ask, have any idea what they are walking away from? Have they seen the true biblical gospel? And how about us? Do we really understand, do we really internalize in our hearts just how much Jesus has lived and died to shape our desires, to shape our ethics, our hopes, and our dreams? Do we see the God who is and who has revealed himself, who has reached into human history to rescue his people and make them a new creation? Or do we just know the potholes all too well and not really see the city for all that it is? 
Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. The gospel ethic radically calls and enables us to follow Christ in lives devoted to God's glory and sacrificial love for others. Let's pray together that God changes us according to his good purposes for us. Father, we pray. We plead that we would not be like the people in the story that Chesterton wrote. We would not be like those who, maybe having spent time in the church or in religion, get frustrated with it, not really understanding the fullness of what you are creating in your new people, not really understanding the the full gospel ethic that Jesus instituted by his life and death and the new life he brings. Father, I pray that any ways I have failed to communicate clearly your word, that you would correct that in our minds and our hearts, and you would build us up into your people by your will. In Jesus' name, amen.